Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 180.LK1219, certificate number 42072, canning. Food was a problem for all who traveled. Armies often spent more time foraging than fighting. The French government offered a prize of 12,000 francs for a safe method of preserving food, and it was won during Napoleon's reign and appropriately by a French chef. Have you ever eaten cold SpaghettiOs out of a can? I think I've always microwaved my SpaghettiOs. They don't, even they don't from, taste any better. Even from the early days when you, you didn't cook them in a pan, you always microwaved them? Uh, I think my mom used to cook them in a pan. But, you know, we Hot. got a microwave when I was four years old. Right. So, like, I've always been in a generation that did not have to eat cold leftovers if they had 30 seconds to spare. I did not see my first microwave until I was... 10 years old. And it was the size of a room. It was very large microwave, and it was thrilling uh, to be able to make food in it. It had a turntable. It, that's more exciting than any other kitchen gadget up until then, because the food would move around. Well, we, we, I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, several technologies all arrived at the same time. One of them was corn chips. One of them was microwaves. And one of them was shredded cheese, a concept that had never occurred to me before. And the and all combined to the brand new technology of nachos, you, which became... You can't be making nachos in a microwave. The number one use of a microwave for the first two years that we had it was nachos. But would the chips go in the microwave or would you just melt the cheese and then pour it on the chips? No, the chips go in the microwave. Why do you want a, a, a sea of soggy chips? You, they don't get soggy in a microwave. You put the chips in, you put shredded cheese on top of it, ground beef with taco seasoning and you microwave it and it's the greatest. We had nachos every Friday night from like 1989 to 1992. Like Did my, you make them in the stove, in the oven? Uh, I think my mom made like nacho cheese over the stove. Oh, yeah, I see. And then poured it over the stuff. Well, let me tell you about scabettios in a can eaten cold. That seems with a spoon. This seems sad. On the on the tailgate of your of your truck. This is for me the 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 realization that spaghettios, a food I had always consumed hot and enjoyed, did not need to be heated. It did not need to be cooked at all because it was already 
eatable and cooked. What does need mean? <laughs> I mean, the nutritional content doesn't change, but do you like the experience of eating cold slimy spaghetti? I think as a kid, I didn't understand the difference between raw meat, which you're not supposed to eat. Like you don't want to eat raw chicken and raw canned Scabettios, which you are fine to eat because they're cooked in the can. And when I w I think I was probably 17 before I realized you can just eat them cold. They may not be as good, but they're fine. They've already been cooked and by no less than a chef, by chef, a, chef Boyardee by himself a, by has cooked these for you, for your delectation. Senor Boyardee. I love cold SpaghettiOs because I discovered them at a time when it felt like grabbing a can off the shelf of a supermarket, paying 45 cents for it or on whatever. A, on a hot day. And going out into the parking back. lot, opening the can with your pocket knife and, and uh, in eating scabetti with a, with whatever, with a found implement. Why are you pronouncing it scabettio when clearly it's pescadios? <laughs> I'm afraid, sir, you are mistaken. Taking the letter P from his varsity <laughs> sweater. He, he turns the pescadios uh, into, into scabettios. But this was a this was a uh, a revelation for me, and I set about after because I was on a camping trip with some friends, and we were several. We it was one of those teenage camping trips where you start off with best intentions. You have a, all your tents and your stoves and everything, and by the end, it's a complete Lord of the Flies situation where you're just eating, you're eating brown sugar out of a bag and just trying to survive. Uh, and I I opened the. Uh, the scabettios and ate them with a spoon and found them to be delicious. In fact, maybe preferable to heated scabettios. And I started then on a campaign to try and eat as many canned foods as I could cold, just to see if they were all as, as good or better. Now, lots of canned foods are uh, meant to be eaten cold. Yeah. Canned peaches. Canned pears. You should not put in the microwave. No. Dog food, for example, just fine cold. The dogs don't seem to mind. <laughs> what what other what other canned foods do you now prefer cold? Well, I don't know about prefer, but what, what how would you feel about sticking a fork into a cold can of chili? Mm, no, it's perfectly edible. Is it saving my life because I'm on a light on a life raft? Did I? Yeah. Did I? Did a plane crash? That's right. Yeah. That's, then then that would be great. Yeah. Uh, you'd you'd be thrilled to get it. But if I'm you? but if I'm standing six feet from a microwave, <laughs> thinking, do I want to eat thirty <laughs> seconds earlier or do I want to eat hot chili? Uh, it's not a contest. What about me. canned green beans? Would you eat those hot or cold? Ooh. Uh. You know, green beans are an interesting case because when they're raw, you'd eat them cold. Right, but they're canned, so they're cooked. I feel like I would eat room temperature vegetables. Even cooked room temperature vegetables? Yes, it's the introduction of carbs for some reason that makes me not think I should be eating them cold. Do you, know, uh, do you know what is, I think, better cold than warm? Canned corn. <laughs> if you sit and eat canned corn with a spoon, it is Phenomenal. On a hot day, nothing like sticking a big bubble tea straw into a cold can of corn and just sucking it up. So refreshing. Because when you heat up corn in a microwave, it has a weird, I think it has a weird smell. It takes on a strange, you know, the, you smell the brine. Yeah, no, uh, no microwaved canned food tastes great. No, and we should stipulate to futurelings who may not, who may have dug up a microwave along with the omnibus episodes and are trying to figure out how to use it. Do not put a can in a microwave. Cans are metal. The metal will arc. It will arc with the, with the magic of microwave technology. So pour it into a little bowl of some kind. 
But, you know, you can have metallic stuff in a microwave. It's just something about the shape and formation of it. Oh, I didn't realize like hot, that. Like hot pocket envelopes have a metallic thing, but it's on the inside of the paper. Yeah, but it's some kind of, it's like a faux metallic thing. You it's, don't think it's really metallic? No, I think it's something else. I think the main problem with a fork on a microwave is the shape is awful for because the prongs are very prone to arcing. Oh. Um, whereas if you had something less pokey, it's less of a problem. Oh, right. Don't put pokey in there. Don't put poke or Gumby's horse pokey. He will melt <laughs> back into a little ball of clay. What about Spam? Spam comes in a can. Sp well, spam I'll, you can eat hot or cold. I'll eat cold Spam. I I've mean, eat, I've eaten Spam on a sandwich. Would you fry Spam or would you? Spam's better fried. Yeah. I think we can all agree, but it's fine in a sandwich. Here's something that maybe you had never thought of, but canning was invented. Someone had to be the first person to put something in a can. There were not always cans. Was it for, what was the first can? Was it for nautical use? Well, the, the, the origin of trying to can foods actually um, has a Napoleonic connection. Ooh. As the... Your, your mom's going to be furious. Uh, Bonaparte. As the Napoleonic Wars got off to a start, and, uh, and these were some of the first major conflicts where very large armies were traveling long distances. I mean, this wasn't like the Huns uh, riding across the steppes. I mean, this was an organized modern army that was traveling from Paris or environs and marching into Germany and ultimately to Russia. Uh, and not an, uh, a modern army, so not one that was, that was going to have as part of its economy uh, the kind of foraging from the local population that, that prior big armies. Well, foraging is a very nice way to put that, <laughs> I think. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was just going through this burning farmhouse and I found a pig. <laughs> Look what I found. All of the produce of this village. Uh, sure, Napoleon was not just trying to slash and burn, but was conquering these these countries and had a had a different philosophy. He was a he was not a. Uh, th these weren't religious wars. These weren't wars where he was uh, trying to destroy and salt the earth. But he wanted an army that could come and conquer and move on and be somewhat self sustaining. And so they put out an order, or a, rather a competition. This is the kind of competition that you love, which is. I, uh, we're, we, we have a prize of 12,000 francs for the first person that can come up with a way to, uh, package nutritious food that won't spoil. So our army can march on foreign lands. You think this is the kind of competition I love? I love the whole, like, let's get food to the army. You love the, oh. Innovation. I might make 12,000 francs if I just solve this, <laughs> this uh, escape room it's, puzzle. It's early crowdsourcing too. <laughs> yeah. For sure. You know, like the government is wise enough to be like, we don't want to pour resources into this. Let's, right. let's make other people do it. Yeah. People, this is French Revolution times. The citizens are elevated now. They're not just serfs. They are... They're free citizens of France, and so... They're spending all 20 decaminutes a day <laughs> trying to improve the, the technological uh, and uh, rationalistic accomplishments of La France. That's right, La France. So this was a long time, of course, before Louis Pasteur understood what it was that created food spoilage, 
what it was, you know, that it was biological organisms. We knew how to prevent it. We knew that you could salt pork, you could for salt example. It, right? You could smoke mm-hmm. things. Um, that cooking stuff prevented decay for a time. But nobody knew why. Nobody understood why. But in 1809, a man by the name, a Frenchman by the name of Nicolas Appert. He invented the pear. He was like, look, a pear. Ah, And it was named for him. You can see it is not an apple. It is something else. It is weird shaped. I put it in a can like so. Softer than an apple. And it only is fresh for like two days. (laughs) Uh, He devised a method whereby you would pack food in in a glass, sort of a glass bottle, you know, and cook it in the bottle and it would create a seal and the food would remain unspoiled and transportable. Bottles probably having been borrowed from winemaking, an industry with hundreds of years of history and people knew how to store things in, in glass, glassware. Right. And once they were sort of sealed and, uh, and, you know, under, under the pressure of, of its, uh, of fermentation then, but these were not, so, yeah, right. Wine. This is the opposite. You want it to not not ferment, chemically change with age. And so he he developed this system, and it was successful. He won the prize, but it it was sort of too late in the Napoleonic arc to save the army, and also, I mean, to you know, to really provide the sustenance that that the the prize suggested. And glass bottles are heavy and breakable and hard to transport. So it was a the, the the innovation was there on the table, but it it um, it didn't prove enough at, it, in its original moment to to uh, it wasn't sufficient to feed the troops. In other words, the problem of the glass bottle needed to be solved first, and it was and there was a Frenchman by the name of Philippe de Girard who <laughs> who was extremely French. French. Philippe de you're, you're saying it with a French accent, but with another French accent on top of that, just in case. I'm, I'm a Frenchman making fun of a French it's accent. It's like two sets of parentheses. It's like when we go, hello there, per- pilgrim. <laughs> uh, he he devised the, uh, the sort of tin can idea. And tin cans had were already kind of in play as a, as a food storage device, they just hadn't, it hadn't been combined with this um, sort of like early pasteurization. And what you put it in, as long as it's airtight, doesn't matter, right? right. I mean, that's a secondary problem. They, they figured out that it's the, the heating is the special sauce, right? Yeah. If it goes in hot, you're good. Yeah, if you heat it in there and seal it, yeah, it's good. Now, sealing a tin can is not... Yeah, what are they using? Something with lead in it, probably. They use lead solder. Well, there you uh, go. And tin, I mean, tin, at first it was uh, it was wrought iron that then they coated with tin, right? The tinning process allows you to take steel or iron and coat it with a thin layer of tin and it keeps it from corroding. So, I mean, they weren't like, they weren't for very long cans made out of solid tin. There wasn't actual tin. But uh, de Girard was not a super good businessman. He had some difficulties over the years. He invented another process uh, uh, having to do with like distilling flax or something. And uh, these businesses didn't, you know, he, he never, he himself never won the prize, right? He always sort of seemed to lose control of his business. And he took the, he took the idea to England and partnered with a guy named Peter Durand in getting the the patent for this food storage process. But Girard didn't exploit it. Durand did. 
and uh, and sort of worked to make it, uh, you know, to improve on the process. And then he sold the patent in 1811 to a company called Duncan Hall and Gamble. Duncan? Duncan. Oh, it's 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 named, German or Dutch or something. Named after a guy named Brian Duncan. Oh, no, it's just a guy named Duncan. Good old Brian Duncan and his friend John Hall. He's the guy from Dunkin' Donuts. He's, that's right. He, uh, he, he uh, drove a cart with really big wheels. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little joke for our friends in Atlanta. Um, so they developed uh, the method of making airtight cans. I mean, it was, a, it was a process of gradual improvement, trying to make... Yeah, you'd think it would be a modern thing. That, you, know, you need to create a vacuum in order to make sure it's in there airtight. Right. You'd think that the best attempt of just some French guy in the early 19th century would not actually get you the, the clean, uncontaminated environment you would need. And also, this was early days of manufacturing. We didn't have, they, they didn't have a, a plant that could just retool and start punching out cans. The, the original cans, each one was handmade. Some guy with a little hammer. Yeah, right. Like, here's a can. Okay, here it is. <laughs> and they'd put some food in it. And then, you know, they didn't, they didn't have pressure cooking. They didn't have a lot of the technology that we developed later. They would sit and cook this one can full of stuff for six hours and then put a lid on it and like, okay, here it is, one can. I would feel bad opening <laughs> such a can. It's like when somebody gives you a really nice scented candle and you yes. don't want to light that on fire. It's too fancy. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Well, this uh, this was in fact the, the case of the early canned food was a sort of novelty luxury item. It was so expensive. The very rich can finally eat Vienna sausages. <laughs> so, so expensive to, to build a can, first of all, and then, then cook this food in it, that it was certainly wasn't something that could be available to your average person. So the thing that would freak out time travelers about modern days would be just watching somebody throw out a can. Freaking cans they'd, everywhere. They'd be like diving for it like a like an NFL safety. No, 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 no. You know those scenes in, uh, in all of uh, the movies where someone comes back from a long trip or f- comes back from the war? And they walk down the supermarket aisle and it's just cans and cans of food and they, they're overwhelmed by it. They're from the past. And they just can't believe – it's not the food that, that's crazy. It's the cans. As the famous saying goes, the past is a foreign country. They do things shittier there. <laughs> well, so as canning started to become a, a – part of its systematization was as soon as the Royal Navy – understood that canning could 
could solve kind of some of the nutrition problems that sailors traditionally had on long sea voyages. I mean, the one thing I learned from all those uh, Patrick O'Brien books that old people enjoy is, yes. is that, uh, you know, everything they ate would just have bugs in it. And they'd be like, oh, hey, here's another biscuit full of bugs. And I'll follow that down with some salt pork full of bugs. <laughs> and people were just like, it's a living. Yeah. The only stuff that didn't have bugs in it was the beer. Yeah, and the bugs. The and bugs did not have smaller bugs. Well, no, I think bugs have bugs. <laughs> Actually, the beer probably had bugs. Little bugs. They, they were probably dead. The, the beer dead would bugs. kill the bugs. Uh, but the, uh, the Royal Navy started to contract with, uh, with Brian Donkin uh, and uh, John Hall. Or what, what, what did we say their company was called? Duncan Hall and Gamble. Isn't Brian Duncan the guy that got kicked off the first season of American Idol in favor of Seacrest? I never watched uh, the first season of American Idol. So long, Idol. Brian Duncan. That's when he had to get into food canning. But the Navy started buying canned goods from Duncan. And, um, and this was an era in the British Navy where they were – uh, after after they defeated Napoleon, let's call it that they they had a little bit of period, a little time there after the War of eighteen twelve, where they were just sailing the 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 high seas, sailing the ocean blue with their with their long uh, sideburns and their beautiful epaulets, with nothing much to do but explore, and it was the era of uh, the great explorations of the Arctic and the Antarctic, places where you you could not go ashore and forage food. You couldn't really even sustain yourself from the ocean. Certainly not if you were overwintering in the Arctic sea ice. That's so, when a, that's when a can of cold spaghetti goes, goes down real smooth. Tell you what, a, a can of cold uh, chili and green beans, they would have, uh, they would have gone for it. So <laughs> a lot of those Arctic and Antarctic expeditions were, uh, supplied with a lot of canned goods in order to and canned goods at great expense. This is this yeah. is before mass production. I wonder if that gives them some kind of uh, aura of cool, some kind of cachet. Yeah. The canned foods are what are what you know all the great Arctic explorers eat. You know, if you're if you're Robert Scott or whatever, uh, you know, this is a fancy food. Yeah, they were they they were fancy foods uh, um, among the upper crust, and I think you know your your Arctic explorers were pretty darn fancy people operating with a royal charter. I mean, a lot of the things that sank those ships was just, there was too much gold braid. <laughs> Couldn't keep the <laughs> ship afloat. But, uh, but very famously, um, one of the most famous Arctic explorers was uh, a man by the name of Franklin who took two of his, uh, took two ships up to try and find the Northwest Passage, right? A lot of those Arctic explorations, nobody really cared where the North Pole was. They wanted to get up over the top of Canada to get a shortcut to inevitably India. In the pre-Panama Canal days, right. America was a big problem. I mean, it's still a big problem today, don't get me wrong, but for different reasons. Then it was so tantalizing to go up in the summer to the northern Canadian waterways and find this jumble of islands and so many different passages. Somewhere is going to be the Pacific. Come on, you got to just be able to get through here someplace. And then they'd get up there and then winter would come and their ships would be frozen in the ice. And they, they fully anticipated spending all winter just sitting in the boat, hoping the sea ice doesn't crack the hull. And then in spring, you know, make another shot at it. But Franklin's expedition, which was a which was a large expedition, two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, the HMS Terror, like 
I, I understand if you're going to send the HMS Terror against the Spanish, uh, that's a great name, but a terrible name for a, a ship on an Arctic expedition. Did you know that it, uh, it's, the name has been so evocative that it uh, has actually inspired its own 21st century horror franchise? The HMS Terror? Yes. No. There's, there's, a, there's a, a Dan Simmons novel about, uh, you know, some furry Lovecraftian monster in the Arctic attacking the Erebus and the Terror which has now been adapted for TV. Like the, hmm. if they had just named their show, the pink, the, the ship, the pink bunny rabbit or something, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nobody would have invented scary Yeti stories about it. I would think it would have been, they would have been named the HMS get home safe and the HMS <laughs> right. plenty of food, <laughs> but they got lost in the Arctic and they actually overwintered twice. And eventually all hands were lost, which was a Victorian era mystery. No, it's a monster. I've seen it on AMC. <laughs> a mystery that inspired multiple rescue operations over the course of rescue operations and then like attempts to discover the the uh, the fate of the of the crew. Cuz you know, a lot of ex- a lot of explorers don't like to think about their fellow explorers dying, but in the halls of the explorers club hearing about a a mysterious vanished ship, like their eyes are just lighting up oh, like, they want it. like on a, on a overexplored earth. Finally, there's a new mystery to solve that, which will require me and my dotty men to head to the Arctic. And, and there were, there were a lot of expeditions sent to find them. At one point, there were as many as 11 simultaneous uh, expeditions it's in not, search of. It's not a good use of manpower. Because <laughs> all 11 of those guys disappear. And then you've got 121 yeah, ships coming to look for them. And over the years, the, the wreckages of the ships were discovered. The, the, there were encampments and burial sites as the, because they didn't all die at once. It was a gradual die-off. Uh, there was some evidence that, that there was cannibalism involved uh, as, you know, as they started to die of starvation. Yeah, you can see the fork marks on the bones. Yeah. But uh, but in the eighties, it was speculated that some of that maybe one of the potential causes of the failure of the expedition was that the lead solder in the cans had driven them all insane. Oh no! Because the lead had leached into the food over you know the two years they were out at sea. Lead poisoning. You know, you'd think the ancients would have had the opportunity to figure out lead poisoning. Yeah, but they must not have, since we were pumping out leaded gas until the. 70s. Well, yeah, we talked about that on the Omnibus, too. We have. So I guess just nobody had worked out that, uh, you know, I'm eating a lot of lead. I'm yeah. going crazy. Uh, what's the connection? Yeah, they must have felt that correlation is not causation. <laughs> right. Maybe I'm just eating so much lead because I'm going crazy. <laughs> uh, but it, that, that theory was eventually dispelled. And at one point, one of the expeditions actually brought back some canned food from the Franklin expedition, which was sort of, you know, uh, held up to the light and Still marveled at, unopened. I think w- the queen should be able to, to, to take a bite. Well, I want to I want to say if your expedition is resorting to cannibalism, but there's still unopened canned food, maybe there is a little lead poisoning happening. If that's Chef Boyardee ravioli or if it's canned <laughs> lima beans, like I can understand there are a lot of canned foods I would uh, absolutely eat some of my friends first. Yeah, well, uh, they, they obviously felt that way too. And and. In 1939, and I can't imagine what the situation would have been, that in 39, 1939, they would, someone would have 
opened a can of this Franklin Expedition food that had been sitting around for almost 100 years and try it, but it was found to still be edible and nutritious, although, you know, a little bit skunky. I bet there was a a dare. I bet there was alcohol involved. Yeah, maybe. Well, you know, it's an Explorers Club thing, right? (laughs) Right. It was up on some mantelpiece and it was like, let's take it down and open it up. I'll eat it right now. Uh, Hilariously, although canned food was becoming more and more commonplace, the can opener was not invented until 1855. Wow. So for... So for 50 years, everybody's just waiting? Yeah, for... If we can can get in here, we'll eat this. Well, no, they were opening it with knives. I'm getting a little peckish. (laughs) Uh, and And weirdly, the can opener was patented in England in 1855, but... In America, not until three years later. So for three years, the English had, or the yeah, the British had can openers. It's like the metric system. <laughs> the, the Americans The rest didn't. of the world is using cans and we're just like, I don't know about that. I've been using my daddy's shotgun. <laughs> we're still out there chewing on the can. <laughs> Arr, I'll get in here. Arr. So have you seen, by the way, these new, uh, the new can opener? Newfangled can openers. So we literally have a can opener in my kitchen that I don't know how to use. Like my mm. kids can use it. Because, mm. you know, the, the current can attaches to the side. Right. Takes off the top within the bulgy part of right. the, it takes off the, the the circle within the bulgy part that's a, a result of the double seam uh, innovation that that didn't come till 1888 but you go ahead you're jumping ahead what do you mean by a double seam well uh, the original can you know sealing the can mass producing a can first of all and then getting a good seal uh, was a, a a process that took a hundred years to kind of develop, and a double seam, and a lot of people got botulism. Yeah, they did in the, on along the way. A double seam is one where the uh, you know the can lip extends up above where the lid goes yes. down, and the lid actually is crimped to have a a lip too, and then they're. The, you know, they're crimped the, together. The two lips are are pushed, are pursed together, yeah, puckered. Right. But anyway, your can opener, your new oh, can Well, opener. there's a new, so I guess people don't like the fact that when you do that, you leave a very jagged edge inside the lip. It makes it hard to drink your Gabettios right out of the can without cutting. Have you, cu- have you cut your lips so many times, many times. In, in your, in your thirst for delicious cold spaghetti? That's why I wear a mustache. <laughs> I thought those a, were dueling scars. Lip is a they're they're boy hardy scars. <laughs> both, both. Some are dueling scars. Some are boy hardy scars. Uh, the uh, the can opener we have these newfangled can openers get rid of the jagged edge by taking off the whole lip. Whoa! So you, what you've done is you've removed the whole top of the can, cr- you know, double crimped lip included. But isn't then just the aren't the walls of the can just sharp? As, just as jagged? I mean, you're dealing with like. Galvanized steel. Apparently not. Maybe it maybe it somehow cr- bends that down as it takes it's it off. It's a triple crimper. <laughs> we need a we need a triple crimping. We must go deeper. Crimpception. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you ast- you attach it on the top rather than the side. And every time I use it, it takes me like three tries to figure out what angle I'm doing. So uh, I'm officially like old man yells at cloud now. Do you have a favorite kind of can opener? Do you like the old one that clamps on like a... I like the clamp. I like yeah. the feel, the secure. It's like my mm-hmm. my submersible has just grabbed onto the side of the oil tanker or whatever. Did you ever have an electric can opener when you were a kid? My grandparents had one. I thought it was fun. Seemed like a grandparent thing or like a... I remember going to friends' houses and they had one where you'd stick the can in there and it would... But it always reminded me of dog food. 
my grandparents also had an electric pencil sharpener, which is the same thing. Instead right. of doing the work yourself, you put it in a in a appliance. Yeah, and David it made the Reese same sound. David Reese would hate it. And I liked the electronic electric pencil sharpeners, mm-hmm. and I disliked I disliked the can opener. What about an electric knife sharpener? What does that even look like? Uh, some kind of knife. It's like a wet stone, except it the the stone moves and the knife stays still. Wow. No, I've, like I've never, I've never seen one. No, we didn't have any of those things. My mom didn't believe in, in too, too many, mo- too many moving parts. I think part of me sensed no, like this is the right way to do it. I don't need to risk 20 more moving parts so that I don't have to turn my wrist six times. Can you open a can with a knife? Have you opened a can with a knife? You know, I have a Swiss army knife on me at all times, which has do. a can and bottle opener. So I've never had to just. How would you open, what is the right way to open a can with a knife? If I'm ever, you know. Well, so you use the, you, you have used the can opener on the, your Swiss Army knife. Er, with er, the, er, er, the thing that kind of yeah. goes it back grabs and forth. Onto one, it grabs onto the outside yeah. of the seam and, and cranks it's in. Seesaws like those, like those train hand car, railroad yeah. hand cars we yeah. like. What, uh, on your way to being a life scout, did you, uh, did you master that? Uh, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but, but is there a way to do it with an, just a, a regular knife blade? You do it, the, you do it basically the same way. It's a similar kind of, of motion. You just don't have the leverage of the, of the hook. So you, you know, you punk, you punch the knife in and then you kind of use the leverage of the point of the knife is inside the can and the, and the handle is out and you kind of just rock it as you go around the can, keeping the keeping the blade inside the, the soup. I think I would be dead. It's, you know, it requires a kind of Western confidence. If it was a liquid, I'd be okay. Cause I bet I could puncture it and suck it out. But if I had to actually get all the way around or at least half the way around to bend it up and get the beans out, I'm not sure. I, 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 I would probably die. I think after, once you get the motion, once you get the motion of the ocean, you can, it, it, it's self-explained. If all the muscle memory comes back to me from my Swiss Army knife, yeah. then I hope I can do it. So, so opening, your, opening your can of food with a bayonet or whatever isn't that hard. And that is how most people, I think, open, even after the invention of the can opener. I mean, even now, there people, is... Most people use a bayonet. There's more canned food than there are canned openers. can openers. Let's just say that. Right? There are a lot of cans of food in this house. How many can openers are there? Yes, Not that many. Yes, but it doesn't mean you have one can you open with the own op- uh, opener and then 39 you open with a bayonet. The, the popularization of canned food as, a, uh, as an accessible food, a middle-class food or a food available to, uh, to normal people came during and after the Civil War and the Crimean War, sort of in the middle of the 19th century. Now canned foods, which were not delicious. I mean, like cheap canned foods made for soldiers uh, actually helped the supply lines of those armies. You can kind of picture a Civil War sepia-toned photograph of a, of a pile of tin cans off to the side of a, of a military encampment. And of course, much easier than having to truck in raw food that would spoil. Right. In the mid-Victorian period, Canning became a kind of popular way for rural people to put up their stores. I like when you say put up. I'm going to put up some peaches. We're going to put up some peaches. When you said we were going to do canning in this entry, I immediately pictured home canning. Home canning. Which is funny because you don't use a can, really. Home canning uses the original Napoleonic glass canister method. And I'm not sure why, because it's easier to seal with a, with a small 
piece of equipment, no no solder needed. Well, the wonderful thing about home canning is that you you can reuse that material every year. You you take ah, a right. you know, you take a mason jar, you put your you put your pears up or your sausages up, you use them in the dead of winter and then you start all over again. Wash and them out and you can't use the accurate name because it would just be it would just be too jarring. Jarring? That's what, it, that's what it should be, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You're not putting stuff in it cans. It would be too jarring if you were jarring. Do you come from a line of canners? Yes. I do as well. Yes. Canning uh, was a big part of, of uh, certainly my mother's childhood. So you had parents and grandparents' basements full of those flats full of empty maple jars for next summer's yep. beet, beet pickles? Well, and I've eaten a lot of food out of, uh, out of people's mason jars and- and, you know, it's always exciting to go down. I mean, nobody wants to go down and see a bunch of okra in a mason jar, but boy, it's nice to go down and see some delicious food waiting. There it's fun because it's yeah. down in spiderwebby, but then you get it out and it's some delicious three bean pickles or last summer's peaches. Right. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Well, a lot of that canning, um, that American home canning is the result of the work of a woman by the name of Amanda Jones, who was, you will be delighted to learn. Welsh. A spiritualist. Oh, I am. I thought you were going to say Mormon for a second. No, no, no. Not, not, uh, she, she didn't go all the way to being a Mormon. She, but she did believe in the writings of Thomas Dick and she did, uh, believe that she was a medium. Did this in some way connect to her home food storage plans? Well, it did. Uh, the spirits at a certain point, <laughs> uh, she was a, she was a teacher, like a New England, uh, school marm, school marm who began to write poems and had a certain amount of success as a poet. Then the spirits told her to move to Chicago because that's where she was needed. And she worked there as a writer. Uh, but she, you know, she suffered like a lot of, like a lot of school marms that follow spiritualism. She also suffered from some unidentified maladies. Imagine if the spirits came to you and told you to move to Chicago. Like they can give you all the mysteries of the universe. You know, they can explain what happens after death or whatever. Yes, tell me. And the Ouija board is like, move to Chicago. Deep I was, dish pizza I is I was better. just in Chicago uh, less than a week ago and I had such a wonderful time. I swear to you, I, if the spirits told me to move there, I wouldn't fight them. Would you eat canned, uh, what is it? Would you have Italian beef? Uh, yeah, I had a canned Italian beef sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I would eat one every morning for breakfast. In a can. But uh, Amanda Jones was a true polymath and sort of uh, in the process of taking a break from her poetry, she developed the vacuum canning process 
for preserving food. She's kind of invented it herself with, she was just tinkering at home. She had a, um, she, I guess her sister's brother-in-law was a professor. Um, but he, he only, he only provided the assist. Um, in 1872, she, she had five, obtained five patents, two of which were in her name alone. And, and the other three, I think shared with professor Cooley that she, and she was using technologies that she got from the spirits. They communicated oh, to her. The spirits knew how to vacuum seal peaches. That's right. Well, that's weird. Do you think they're time traveling spirits? Mm, who knows? They might be, um, they might be thetans. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> that's right. If you've been living in a volcano for a while, one thing you know is how to use heat to seal food. But she also, um, she also patented a kind of oil burner that that ended up being a real financial success for her. And the you know the canning, uh, the canning did too. Maybe if you were a great woman inventor back then, nobody would buy your stuff unless you were like, no, 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 it's okay. The, the spirits invented it. <laughs> it was the spirits. Was the, the patriarchy made you uh, made you credit the male spirits. Well, she was a suffragette, and in 1890 started the Women's Canning and Preserving Company of Chicago. The WCPCC? And she said, Here's, here, was her, uh, here was her address to her employees. She said, this is a women's industry. No man will vote our stock, transact our business, keep our books, pronounce on women's wages, or supervise our factories. Give men whatever work is suitable, <laughs> but keep the governing power. They want the means of production. Yes. We're merely soldiers in petticoats. So she she started the uh, the women's canning and preserving company with the intention of making it a a women's own owned and operated enterprise. That, it's, it's adjacent to the kind of things that it's it's you know it's the same reason why nursing is an easy sell in that time. It's adjacent right. to the kinds of things that women have done, but it can become a money making a money making. And she and she meant it as a like a business training enterprise. Women would come to work for the uh, the WCPC, and then take that experience and go start their own businesses oh, elsewhere. It's, it's like an MLM. Right. You, you get a downline of home canners. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that venture failed at three years later, and uh, the history is silent on why. Sorry. But maybe it's maybe the women that worked there spread like spores across the landscape, and that's why the United States is now an entirely female-run enterprise. Nice try, Amanda. She was so close. But she did... Continue to obtain patents. Uh, she had new patents related to canning in 1903, 1905, 1906. And she was also simultaneously developing her oil burner further. And uh, I think ended up being a consultant to the U.S. Navy and um, was like in the the list of most American, most important Americans of, of that kind of pre-war era. She probably saved lives. I mean, canned food... The ability to home canned food probably saved lives in times of shortage and the Dust Bowl. Well, now the crazy thing about home canning is that, and and why her vacuum process was so important, is that the majority of botulism deaths in America, even today, are a result of improperly home canned foods. Because That's funny. Because how many people are eating home canned foods? It's, it's dangerous enough that even though a fraction of a percentage, percentage of us are actually eating these foods, it's killing them in great greater numbers than industrial problems. And it's because canning seems kind of simple, right? You just heat up the food to 
to boiling or whatever and boil it for a while and then seal it up and you're good to go. But actually botulism can't be killed at the temper at boiling water temperature. Jet, you jet fuel can't melt uh, botulism no, pathogens. I don't know. It's kind of you'll have, we'll have to consult the uh, the the behold the pale horse. <laughs> no, in fact, you need to um, botulism is only killed at 121 degrees Celsius if you boil a food at that temperature for three minutes. One twenty. How how hot is that? Five. Go on. Do it. Do it. I know you can do this. Celsius to Fahrenheit conversion in Ken's mind. It is. I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't do it that way. I can only do it. The, I can only go Fahrenheit to Celsius. Well, uh, this show is not a resource for home canners. Do not use our advice. Uh, do not use our measurements to determine whether your home canning is safer. If not. you find canned food from our civilization in the ruins, uh, you know, tread lightly. The beet pickles you eat may be your last. Now, as you said, salt is a good cure. It's 250 degrees. 250 degrees. Right. And the, and the only way to really achieve that kind of temperature is through a pressure cooker. I mean, that's how most, that's how home home canning works. Right. The increase in pressure allows the temperature to be hotter than you could achieve just boiling it on a pot. Most of the home canned food we eat in my house, by the way, now comes from my wife's parents oh. who, who keep a garden and are always sending us their their, their pickles and, and jellies and whatnot. But hilariously, they are very health conscious. Hmm. And uh, as a result, they don't use sugar. They're making all these jellies and pickles and stuff with like equal or, you know, oh. or Splenda or some kind of artificial oh, no, sweetener. That's not healthy. That so creates you, uh, MSG head. It turns into formaldehyde <laughs> in your veins or something. <laughs> So we'll crack it. My kids love it. My kids will eat all these jelly, but my wife and I eat it and we're like, something going on. Something's wrong with this. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, that's terrible. Well, actually, I think some of the botulism uh, probably results from the fact that a, even a pressure cooker, like your typical home pressure cooker, isn't really the best tool for home canning. And there is a there is a special home canning pressure cooker. Do I have to go to a creepy prepper website with camouflage uh, designs in the header? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because this kind of stuff, it becomes very popular with um, what are described as cocooners. What's a cocooner? A uh, kind of survivalist? Yeah. Wh- whenever the economy crashes, whenever things uh, look dire. Whenever the Red Dawn troops come to Colorado. That's right. Or Montana or wherever you want to put it. Probably them. Colorado. Well, Colorado with the with, uh, dressed up to look like Montana. <laughs> There's all Wyoming in the way. All those, all the cocooners want to buy canned goods. They want to stock up as you're, as you, uh, as you like to say, mm-hmm. let's stock up. Is that what I say? Yeah. You have that big, that My huge room in your phrase. basement <laughs> that has that, that wood engraved sign above the door. Let's stock up. We actually do have some like, you know, sensible food supply in our basement. And you and I used them when we took uh, omnibus photos in the bunker. We used them for oh, set right. dressing. That's right. I think I still have some of that canned except, water. Except you sold your house. So are those, th- <laughs> are those things sitting in your barn? Do the uh, new owners have my uh, have my unmilled flour? I think for the next few weeks we can still go retrieve that material. I'm going to go sneak into your barn at night and take back all my uh, biscuit mix. Well, you're going to have to navigate all of the booby traps that are still active. <laughs> you know, the new owners, I'm going to tell them how to defuse the booby traps, but not you. 
sneaking around. I'm smarter than the wet bandits. I'm not too worried. What about, isn't botulism the same thing that you put in Botox? They're just yeah, a, but it's like uh, de, debotulized. Does that mean if I expose not. Nicole Kidman to 250 degree Fahrenheit temperatures, her, her, lip her, her lips melt. will melt away? <laughs> On the other hand, maybe that's true of everyone. Maybe everyone's <laughs> lips will melt at 250 degrees. But it was really World War I that made canning, uh, that made tin cans and canned food, you know, like. In, like, in every pantry. Yeah. And because by World War I, the technology to can food and the need to be able to sustain your army overseas. I mean, there's no way that the that World War I could have been conducted the way it was if the armies had been foraging off the land. I mean, the people of Belgium already <laughs> were. <laughs> They're already were importing. Pretty depleted. Uh, there, there wasn't much food to be had. And so they were armies fed largely from tin cans. And uh, the British had terrible, terrible food for their soldiers in the early days of the war, so much so that the British uh, army rebelled against the quality of their their tinned meats. Their tins, they would say. Yeah. The British uh, re- responsibly call their cans tins, even tins. though they're made of aluminum now, I'm sure. Right. But why, where do we get the word can? Is it short for like canister? Canister, yeah. Ah, yeah, okay. and, and, uh, and tin is short for tinister. Tinister. Well, which was uh, the, the you know, a tinister always pays debts. That's why I don't like to sin because it's it's so sinister. sinister. Yes. Uh, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> Conversation at, uh, killer. Toward the end of the war, uh, predictably the French, who were the inventors of canning. It all comes back to them. Uh, they wanted to really throw it in the faces of the British. So they started canning coca vin and... Oh, they, get, uh, they have better food? Yeah, they had uh, beef bourguignon and all these wonderful things. And then the Italian army started showing up with scabettios and other chef boyardee, mini raviolios. Mamma mia. So the British had to, had to up their game and, of course, uh, filled their cans with distinctly British foods like corned beef and shepherd's pie. I'm eating and- a can of bread. <laughs> Big can of soda bread, the way mom used to make. But after the war, then the canning revolution was uh, off to the races and pretty not, much anything you could can, they have canned. Was it televised? The canning revolution will not be televised. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. There's food in cans and Whitey's on the moon. <laughs> and that concludes canning. Entry 180.LK1219, certificate number 42072. In the omnibus. So the end of the story is that canning, canned food now exists in great profusion. Canned can food everywhere. Uh, not unlike social media, an invention which uh, has proliferated in the last few years. And it's also one of the leading causes of a different kind of toxin, toxic discourse. That's right. There's, toxic emotions. There's no amount of heat you can put onto, onto social media really? that will kill the... I think there's a lot of tweeters that if I lit them on fire, hmm. their work would be improved. Hmm. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't need to stack that many pieces of wood to be a bonfire as high as Ben Shapiro, for example. Yeah, it's, right. It's, okay. It's very easy. Okay. Uh, but John and I, as products of our time, we made sure that our, you know, believing as we do in the aims of of the omnibus and these... We're fully committed to this at this point. These soldered uh, cylinders of knowledge we're going to be leaving in bunkers all across the Western United States and uh, the uh, high Altiplano of Bolivia. 
we uh, wanted to make sure others knew about this important project, and as a result, we were at Omnibus Project on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. John was at John Roderick. I was uh, at Ken Jennings. Also, uh, El Proyecto Omnibus, if you're listening from Bolivia. We uh, uh, encourage the Futurelings Facebook page to congregate and uh, discuss the aims of the project, to set us right when we got historical details wrong about canned foods. They've been very helpful in locating errata and addenda. Mm -hmm. uh, and then mostly just wasting our time with a bunch of crap. But also errata and addenda. Errata and addenda. Those, they're, they're my two favorite Muppets. I like erotica more than I like addendica. Hmm. Addendica it sounds like a Metallica B-Sides collection. <laughs> addendica feels a little bit like a dental assistant on, a, on a, uh, like one of the outer planets. Addendica is like uh, a very potent strain of indica, I think. Ooh, indica. Indica. Addendica. <laughs> And what did I not say? Uh, email address. You could send us email to theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You could send physical mail. Physical mail. Physical mail. Not Indica, but, um, and not your home sativa. canned stuff. Send us your sativa mail. <laughs> not your home canned peaches, please. Uh, I already have a pantry full of Splenda flavored uh, <laughs> marmalade. Uh, so, <laughs> but send us photos of your home canning setup. That's what we want to see. We want to see your gear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pol uh, Polaroids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Send us naughty Polaroids of your of the things you do with your vacuum sealer <laughs> to uh, John Roderick, care of Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. <sighs> Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. In fact, you may be the descendants of all the Pacific salmon that ended up in cans there on Cannery Row. <laughs> you may be furious at this episode. You may be... Uh, yeah, maybe the spirits that we're talking to Amanda Jones were the spirits of, of canned creatures. Yeah, you may be thinking, um, those were my great-great-grandparents, you monsters. Or maybe these are botulism toxins, uh, you know, yeah. grown to eventual... <laughs> uh, pencil eraser size and uh, achieve sentience shortly thereafter. And they're like, yeah, why don't you do more shows on a mass murder of our people? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like to them, it's like a, like to us, it's a 1% failure rate. To them, it's a 1% success rate. 99% of us died in your uh, pressure cookers, you monsters. Or they may be, uh, the futurelings may be uh, super intelligent sea lions who are like, yeah, fat lot of good it does us. <laughs> Your cans are floating all around the, the oceans and we can't open them. We don't have opposable <laughs> thumbs. You will evolve them. You got you to gotta think about the long game. Keep Steve working. Lions. Keep thinking. Uh, we, we've learned from the Franklin expedition that that food will probably still be edible. Oh, also, you know, I didn't mention, but, but the whole idea that canned foods are less nutritious has been fairly well disproved. In oh, fact, good. the um, the canning process generally makes the uh, the food fibers, the, you know, the, the nutritional fibers more digestible, not less. And, uh, that, that the vitamin content of that food remains intact. Does that just mean it's the same as boiling the equivalent vegetables? 
because yeah, I mean, well, no, except because it happens oh, yeah, in the can, it all stays there. Yeah, nothing escapes. Nothing leaves with the water. So make sure when you when you empty that can of lima beans, drink the lima bean water down. Well, but here's the other problem: there's salt is used in canning still, oh. and the brine is very salty. So some uh, recommendations are that you wash the food. You take it out of the can, then you rinse it and rinse off all the salt, and it it makes it much healthier. When I was a kid, we uh, my brother and I made di- we thought it'd be fun to make dinner for my parents once, and we accidentally used some kind of uh, instead of all-purpose flour, we used some kind of flour that already had salt in it. Uh, so we wound up this incredibly salty. You used baking soda, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what kind of flour already has salt. A uh, self-rising flour, maybe? I don't know. So it already had too much sodium in it, and my brother was totally uh, either plussed or nonplussed. He was like, no problem. We'll just uh, we'll just put pepper in. Yeah, balances it yeah, out. Yeah, you balance it out. Like, if it's too salty, just add pepper. Pepper is the yang to salty in. So if you, it, I recommend this. If you're drinking lima bean water and it's a little salty, just toss in an equal amount of pepper and it'll be fine. <laughs> well, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, although you futurelings may um, regard our catastrophe as your liberation day, for all we know. The day the meteor hits may be your year for the July. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.